The psalm can be found on page 605 of the Church Bibles. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, but it, and its place remembers, remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you, angel, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let me pray as we begin. Our Lord God, we thank you for all the great things that this psalm will teach us. Please give us ears to hear, and by your Spirit, take us and change us so that we are active in remembering you, your goodness, and therefore live obediently. Ingrain deep within our soul the desire to praise in gratitude to you. In Jesus' name, and for your glory alone, amen. Well, I do hope many of us recognize that psalm we've just had read to us. If you've closed your Bibles, we're on page 605, and we're looking at Psalm 103. Charles Spurgeon, a, a preacher from the 19th century, uh, said of this psalm, there is too much in this psalm for a thousand pens to write. And I've certainly found it a challenge deciding what to include. Psalm 103 spells out for us the benefits of the Lord by telling us a great deal about how he acts towards those who fear him, those who obey his commands, which is the author's way of talking about the believer. 
This psalm has, of course, inspired songwriters. Many of us will have sung the Christian hymn, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Do you know the next line? There we go. Good. Uh, and there's a, put, uh, a few uh, popular contemporary Christian songs that, uh, that borrow ideas from this psalm as well. In fact, we're going to be singing one next. And I hope over the next half hour or so uh, that when we sing this song, you will be able to see the psalm in this song. So the psalm itself splits into three sections. Uh, verses 1 to 3 are about the individual believer and the encouragements for them to praise the Lord for the benefits he or she has received. Verses 6 to 18 are about the praise that is due to the Lord for the mercy and grace he has shown his people. Uh, mercy, of course, is being spared the bad things we deserve. I don't know if anybody played that game in the playground at school, you know, where you lock hands and you, you try and twist each other's hands until the person squeals in pain and they shout at you, Mercy, don't they? You see, that's how I remember mercy. <laughs> being spared the bad things we deserve. Uh, and of course, the other is grace. And grace is being given the good things we don't deserve. So 6 to 18, they're about praise due to the Lord for the, his mercy and grace to the believer. Uh, finally, verses 19 to 22, they're about the whole of creation being commanded to praise the Lord. And I have three points for us. The first is by far the longest, and they get progressively shorter. Our first point is to go with the first five verses. And I just wonder, just look, have a look down at the first two verses. There's a command there to praise. So I've borrowed that for our first point, which is this. Praise, just do it. Praise, just do it. Now today in our contemporary culture... The human being is spoken of in their, you know, their physical, emotional and spiritual terms, or perhaps, you know, mind, body and soul that we hear, don't we? When we hear the word soul, we might think about our spiritual life. But in the days when this psalm was written, the word soul was a conventional Hebrew way of addressing oneself. It is one's very self as a living, conscious being. Soul is our all, our completeness. So David wrote this psalm, and here we start with David talking to his soul and encouraging himself to praise. Verses 1 and 2 say, Praise, it's sometimes translated bless, the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul and forget not all his benefits. He says, all my inmost being. And so there is to be no going through the motions, perhaps like we might when we sing a familiar song, and instead we're thinking about the Sunday lunch, or the football, or 101 other things that come to mind. Not here. David is addressing his whole self to praise or blessing. And it is to praise all God's benefits. I wondered if you spotted the pairing of the words all. All my soul and all his benefits. 
David here commands his whole self to praise or bless the Lord. In verse 2, he records it three times. Praising or blessing is to speak well of him and his abundant generosity. But why? Why praise him? And verse 2 tells us, it is so that we do not forget all his benefits. David knew he was forgetful of the Lord's goodness. This psalm directed God's people then, and also us today, to praise, and in so doing, forget not all his benefits. We are taught this great truth that we drift off and forget, therefore, the need to direct ourselves. If we fool ourselves into thinking that this does not happen, please think again. It is David, author of 73 Psalms, it's almost half of them, and he has to direct his own soul. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, Rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write that same thing to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Rejoicing is, of course, more than praising. It's an attitude of gratitude. And rejoicing serves as a safeguard, which is a similar idea to not forgetting all God's benefits that we read of in Psalm 103. So, I hope at this point you are convinced that we need to stir ourselves and commit to praise and rejoicing. So now let's look at verses 3 to 5 together. Praise the Lord, verse 3, who forgives all your sins and heals all your verses. In verse 3... David is writing about his own experience of forgiveness and healing. This was when he committed adultery with a lady Bathsheba and then went on to murder her husband. If you're new to Christian things, which I do hope some of you are, the author of this psalm was a king who worshipped God wholeheartedly but also sinned spectacularly when he took another man's wife for an intimate liaison. She then became pregnant with David's child. And then David concocted a plan to have her husband, who, by the way, was an employee of his uh, and was working away from home, no less, murdered. But first, he invited him to come back home so that he might sleep with his wife and therefore it would appear that the child was born of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, rather than of David. This, however, did not happen, because Uriah was a faithful employee, and he kept working, even when he returned home. So David found himself right in the thick of it, and schemed to have Uriah killed, and then take Bathsheba as his own wife, and thus cover over his adultery. And so it is that we have one of the heroes of the Old Testament, author of so many of these psalms, who was also an adulterer and a murderer. 
but also someone who repented and had faith when he was called to do so by the Lord's prophet Nathan. And he turned back from his sinful course of action. He was then forgiven and healed. And it's quite encouraging, isn't it, if you're new to Christian things or if you've been a believer for many years, to realise that Christians are not good people, but those who have turned back to the Lord and as such are forgiven. Praise the Lord, verse 3, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Something obvious to say here. Healing can often refer to curing someone from physical sickness. I think we would probably all have known that, wouldn't we, before I said it. It can also, though, be used as a metaphor to talk about restoring the moral and spiritual life. In the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Hosea all use it this way on occasion. And it is here linked with forgiveness. The things that we think, say or do that are sinful, they come from this underlying attitude deep down within us. We like to decide what the rules are, what's right and wrong, rather than letting God do the deciding. So in verse 3, the sins may be like diseases which weaken or corrupt the areas of life that we don't let God rule over yet. And it is God's mercy that takes them away. And this is what happened to David in the occasion I've just described once he did repent of the path he was on. And we too can know forgiveness and healing of our moral and spiritual lives. I'm sure a great many of us here will have more than one story to tell of God's work in our lives, undoing our sinful, uh, spiritual and moral failings. So praise God for it. Praise the Lord, verse 4 who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. This is a reference to being raised to eternal life. Praise the Lord for his work of raising us to eternal life once we die. It's he that does that work. That is not the road we are on at the moment unless we've repented and believed. So far, we've seen the benefits of God in his works of saving us from bad things, showing us mercy through forgiveness and redemption. Now, though, we move to see some ideas of God lavishing positive blessings, his grace, starting with the idea of being crowned, which means he makes his child a king. Praise the Lord, verse 5 who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What do you desire? Well, God is not like a genie, granting our every whim. The New Testament book, James, is helpful in saying, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. Praise the Lord for all the good things he gives us. I know a man who, whenever he prays before a meal, says a paraphrase of that verse. And that's actually a great way to not forget God's goodness three times a day, is it? 
The eagle in this verse is an emblem of strength, vitality, and youthful endurance. So as God satisfies our desires with good things, the author realizes that the opportunities which life offer still lie ahead of us, just as they did in his youth. Now, I happened to be listening to a talk on prayer the other day, and I picked this up, which I think is quite helpful and is worth taking on board at this point. The speaker shared this quote. Your religion is what you do with your solitude, which was Archbishop William Temple saying that. And then he went on to briefly explain that by saying, begin quote, when you're totally alone and you don't have to think about anything, what do you think about? Is it money? Do you fantasize about the house you want? Where does your mind naturally go? Is it to adoration of God? Your real God is what you most effortlessly think about. Secret prayer is a crucial measure of whether you love God yourself or if you're just using him. End quote. Now I think the same is true of praise. In your solitude, what do you do? When you are alone, do you reach for your mobile phone to have a quick surf? Do a quick little bit of window shopping online? Maybe check the news and sports headlines. Perhaps your thoughts go to other distractions. It's worth asking yourself, isn't it? Where do my thoughts go in those quiet moments? But be careful. These things very quickly replace the Lord as boss and they become idols. With God's help, we can train ourselves so that our thoughts go to prayer or praise and not to idolatry. Ask the, Lord, ask the Lord to help your thoughts turn to him in praise and prayer. Ask him to show you the good things that he gives you. Commit yourselves to praise and praise him for his forgiveness and restorative work in our character. He's redeeming us to eternal life and the generous outpouring of his good gifts into our lives. Secondly, and more briefly, praise. So we remember God's mercy to his people. Praise, so we remember God's mercy to his people. Verses 6 to 18 are a shift from the particular benefits which the author has himself received to God's general grace to all his people. First, verses 6 to 8. In and of themselves, they are wonderful mercies to God's people to remember. Just have a look at them. Uh, the things to praise the Lord for. He works righteousness and justice. His ways were made known to Moses and the people of Israel. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. All amazing things to remember. Yet, so often as we find in scripture, 
if we dig a little deeper, there is so much more here. Let's just remember, the psalm records these things as mercies or benefits of the Lord, things to praise him for. David, the author, is actually referring back to the events of the Exodus, particularly chapters 32 to 34. Here, the people disobey terribly. There's the incident with the golden calf. And they're actually threatened by being wiped out by the Lord. Now, Moses appeals to the Lord's character and the Lord's promise-keeping nature. And the Lord doesn't wipe them out. The problem then is that the Lord can't live with them anymore. His wrath at their sin will destroy them. And yet he does agree to go with them because he wants to identify them as his people. The Lord relents after his personal interaction with Moses. So, verse 7 of Psalm 103 picks out this very significant episode where we see the Lord's mercy to all his people, of which David is a descendant and therefore directly benefits of his mercy. And so do we, because one of David's descendants was Jesus. So the Lord's mercy is worth remembering. And so we come to verse 8, which pops up a few times through the Old Testament. I wonder if you spotted it. The ladies who come along to focus, uh, hopefully you'd remember it from Jonah chapter 4. Jonah actually uses the words as he's talking to the Lord. Back in the Exodus story, though, is where it first appears in the Bible. Following on from what I've just described about the golden calf and God relenting, uh, Moses asks to see the Lord's glory. That is, the Lord's awesomeness or all of his goodness. And so it is that the Lord agrees for Moses to glimpse, as it were, the trailing edge or the afterglow of his glory. And so when Moses is up on the mountain again, the Lord passes by him and Moses is pushed safely into a cleft in the rock. And this is what he hears, Yahweh, which is what Lord in capital letters means, it's God's name, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes, and so it goes on. The love and faithfulness described in verse 8, and there in Exodus are connected with the Lord's promised mercy and his grace. They're tied to his name. It's his very character. They are grounded in his reliability, his promise to keep his word, to be faithful, to be true. So to David's hearers, verse 8 of Psalm 103 would have reminded them of the Lord's mercy in being forgiving just one of his benefits. And then after quoting these words, the author proceeds to enforce them in verses 9 to 18. 
He finishes in verse 18 by reminding the people of the covenant or the deal that the Lord had made with them at this point in the Exodus story. The Lord will clear the land and the people are to be obedient. I'm just going to share with you what John Stott says on verses 9 to 18. Begin quote. The two negatives in verses 9 and 10 indicate the Lord has set limits to his own righteous wrath against sin. The first, verse 9, is a time limit that he will not always accuse. The second, verse 10, is a restraint upon the expression of his anger that instead of that just judgment, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Then follow three positive illustrations of the Lord's grace. Verse 11, his steadfast love is as high as heaven. Verse 12, his forgiveness removes our sins as far away as infinity. And verse 13, his pity is as tender as a father's for his children because, verse 14, he knows our human frailty. The mention of human weakness in verse 14 leads to the final underlining of the mercy of the Lord which is a contrast between human brevity and the eternity of God's love. In verse 15, humankind flourishes like grass, and in verse 16, perishes like grass too, when the hot desert wind blows upon it, in contrast to those who reverence God. Verses 17 and 18 uh, uh, sorry, uh, verses 17 and 18, and keep his covenant and remember his commandments, his love and righteousness endure forever and enrich their posterity. End quote. And if we're a believer in the Lord Jesus, we are part of God's people, saved by him for obedience to him. Let's praise so we remember God's mercy through the ages to his people and also remember to obey his ways, verse 18. If you're new to Christian things, I hope this does direct your soul towards the one who can and will satisfy your desires with good things. For all of us, one good way to remember God's mercy is by singing psalms and songs based on scripture, singing them together. Another way is simply to read through your Bible. If you aren't reading it regularly, how will you remember his mercy? Or indeed, how to obey? I heard of a chap recently who every year undertakes to read the Bible cover to cover. He's done it over 30 times now. I'm sure he's good at remembering the Lord and all his benefits. I'm sure he knows what obedience looks like too. Our final point is praise from all creation. Praise from all creation. Verses 19 to 22 point us forward 
beyond ourselves and beyond God's people who have inhabited the earth. Reading from verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Verse 19 is the author turning from the love of the Lord for his people to the Lord's sovereignty over all his creation. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and from there he rules over all. And so, because the Lord rules over all with his universal, uh, rules over all with his universal throughout all time kingdom, the author directs all of creation to praise him. And it is a beautiful thing. The command goes beyond the individual soul to include the angels and the mighty ones and even the material creation. You see, the overflow of goodness and steadfast love that the Lord's work reveals compels David's people to call on the angels and all of nature to join in their celebration. And so it is that the song closes with the singer returning to his own soul, calling it to praise the Lord with a deeper appreciation of how much praise and adoration he owes. And I hope that the same is true for us too now. Amen.